Asima Saar hat mehrere Unternehmen gegründet und betreibt den sehr erfolgreichen Newsletter Exponential View mit rund 200.000 Abonnenten. Sein kürzlich erschienenes Buch Exponential Age beschäftigt sich mit den Folgen des rasanten technologischen Wandels auf Gesellschaft, Politik und Wirtschaft. Der Vater von drei Kindern studierte Philosophie, Politik und Wirtschaft an der Oxford University. Wir haben das Gespräch auf Englisch geführt. One of your theses is that everything is changing at very fast speed. Can you explain to us where there are previous epochs in history where there were comparable exponential technology shifts as we witness them today? Uh What is unique about uh, today is that the pace with which the technology is developing um, at sort of underlying capabilities uh, and then in the way that we uh, apply it into our economies and into our societies um, is really, really uh, fast. And it is faster than periods that we've seen um, in previous uh, epochs. And previous epochs, you also saw exponential technology change in the sense of compounding improvements of the technology. But the amount they improved every year was actually quite small. Uh, and so the, the shift of the change, the discontinuity was felt over a, a century or over generations. Whereas today, these technologies dramatically improve uh, almost unrecognizably within a matter of a few years. And that's what dis is distinctly different. It is that, that within five years, the capabilities, what we might do with a mobile phone, drastically, drastically change. Uh, and yet it took decades for the first Gutenberg printing press to move from Mainz in Germany out to across Europe. And that's the distinction. You mentioned the mobile phone. Yeah. Can you give us another example of how exponential technologies are changing our lives? Well, I think we are all very familiar with uh, the mobile phone and what's underlying that mobile phone, which is computing and the increasing power of, of chips. Uh, and that increasing power of chips gives rise to databases and laptops. And it also gives rise to through other dynamics the fact simple fact like i have uh, 57 cameras in my household when i was an, a nine-year-old boy we had one camera and today we have cameras all over the place in our cars on our laptops in uh, all sorts of strange devices but it's not just computing where we see exponential technologies um, i identify three very broad domains where we are seeing exponential technology improvement Uh, the, the second is in the domain of new energies. Uh, so solar power, wind power, storage through things like uh, grid scale battery systems. Uh, those are things that are improving on a price basis by 20% or so every year compounding. The third area is uh, the field of biology and our ability to learn from and apply the skills of nature to our medical and healthcare materials and, and, and chemical processes. And that is being driven by exponential uh, product and technology improvements in the fields of DNA sequencing, 
in DNA synthesis and in protein engineering. And what that will allow us to do is take what is currently cumbersome and expensive to do by hand, which is to tinker with a, a microorganism to do something useful for us, and systemize that and turn that into something that we can do, use, apply as a technique in many, many different applications. And then the final area is in the area of manufacturing, where in the area of manufacturing, really, we have been dependent on gradual improvements into things like casting and molding uh, and sculpting, uh, combinations that would either be very good for creating millions of copies of the same product or creating a single copy of a very bespoke piece. Um, and through the technologies of additive manufacturing, which most people may know as 3D printing, we're now actually going to transform uh, manufacturing. And that technology, 3D printing, is also on its own exponential shift, improving by about 29% every year on a compounded basis. In what field that you just mentioned, do you see the fastest changes happening? It's a really great question. Uh, in the underlying technologies, one of the most exciting fields is what is happening in the uh, biological arena. Uh, and the reason is that we already started at a very, very high cost uh, to read gene genes, and it was very, very expensive and error-prone to synthesize genes. Um, so the first human genome was sequenced uh, at the turn of the millennium. It cost around a billion dollars. Uh, the second genome cost uh, about 100 million to sequence. That was about a year or so later. And now we've got that cost down to a couple of hundred dollars. And there's a real material difference when you drop from, you know, a million dollars a genome sequence, say, to, to $200, right? At $200, you can apply these things very, very widely. So I think that what we've seen there has been really, really dramatic um, in terms of price declines. But we also shouldn't write um, we shouldn't forget that in the computing domain, we are still seeing really, really significant and interesting breakthroughs, perhaps not in the meaning, in, in the um, emotionally resonant way that we saw with the arrival of the, of the smartphone. But under the hood, things are changing very, very rapidly. And in particular, the arrival of artificial intelligence or machine learning um, about, about a decade or so ago as it became more popularized has created enormous new demand for computing power, which the computer industry has been able to meet. So I think each of the domains tells its own story. If I had to pick one, it'd be the biology one, but I would do that by saying, don't forget things are still happening in the computer domain. In theory, exponential growth can go on forever, mm. but in real life, things have limits. Mm -hmm. I just wonder whether fast changing technologies reach a limit where it can reach a point mm -hmm. where progress somehow freezes. Well, mathematically, mathematically, exponential functions can go on forever. Um, physically, our current physics, uh, and it's wonderful to be talking to someone in, in Switzerland where, uh, you know, Einstein did uh, so much of his great work. Our current physics tells us that there are going to be limits, physical limits um, to, to how far this can go. The universe is only so big, there are only so many atoms in the universe, but, but we may find better physics uh, in years to come. Um, so what does happen is that particular approaches in technological development um, may become saturated. Uh, in other words, uh, either in the, the, the approach that we take, we can't 
get any more gains out of it. That's certainly what happened within the internal combustion engine, that there were sort of thermodynamic limits to how efficient a an internal combustion engine could get. And we, we have sort of hit that limit and, and now the gains are really, really tiny. Um, so, but what does seem to happen with these current technologies is that just as we reach one particular limit, and that limit is normally driven by the practicality of the engineering, we may find a new technique that helps us push past that that limit. And nowhere is that more prescient, uh, sorry, pardon me, nowhere is that more clear than in the semiconductor industry, the chip industry, where chips have got faster because we've been able to miniaturize the components. And for more than 10 years, people have been saying, well, the components are going to get so small that they will become uh, uh, susceptible to the effects of to choose another physicist, but not Einstein this time, but the effects of quantum physics, uh, where physics behaves very differently at the scale of the, of the very, very small. And even though people have been worrying about that for 10 or 15 years, the industry has been able to continue to deliver chips that are smaller and faster. More importantly, it's found new ways of building chips that use bigger components that are also extremely fast for what we need. And many of the chips that drive the artificial intelligence systems that, that we use when we use our Alexa or our Siri uh, or uh, translation on Google are actually using these, what, these new designs that are very fast for AI, but actually use old technologies. And it's really interesting to see that interplay that, that means that provided we, we generate the demand we can sometimes, and I wouldn't say always, but we can sometimes find ways to meet that demand. For most people, these developments are happening simply too fast. How can societies assure that people can keep up with these fast changes? In your book, Exponential Age, you call that the exponential gap. Mm. How can we close this gap? It, well, I mean, the exponential gap is is really emerges because the technologies are um, accelerating. They're being built by our collective capabilities um, as uh, industries and 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 as as economies, uh, and they are uh, changing very very rapidly. And the groups and organisations that can take advantage of those. Um, will do very, very well. Most of us uh, struggle with the concept of this exponential shift, right? The speed with which it happens. Um, and and so that is where the, the gap emerges. And when I think about how you go about closing the gap, I think there are, there are two really critical uh, aspects to it. The first is that for all of us, um, we need to, given whatever capabilities we have, access a sense of agency. That is a sense that we can participate, a sense that we can have our voices heard. And that agency, I don't think, is something that is given bro broadly, especially in richer societies to people. It's something that people have to develop as their own capabilities because the, the mechanisms for that participation exist, whether it's writing to your representative, whether it is... Uh, doing something different in your in your business and asking your team to work on something different, uh, whether it is being able to write or blog or participate in some other way. Um, and, and the question, I think, is do you have the right um, 
tools to ask the correct questions. And one of the things I try to do in my book, Exponential, is give people the tools to ask the right questions, to know what the issues are so they can they can be active um, in that discussion. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is that in the work that I did, I came to a, a realization that the, the pace of development w- was almost baked into the combination of humans being these creatures full of ingenuity and creativity and humans being these creatures of communication and culture within the context of a glo- complex global economy. And those, that creates the recipe for rapid innovation and development. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't tell us how we want that development to occur. It doesn't tell us which things to prioritize. In other words, it doesn't tell us the direction of this exponential curve. And one of the things I think that's happened over the last 50 or 100 years is that we have largely let technologists consider what technology ought to look like, what it should look like. And I think the second thing that we can do through our participation is better direct where our efforts go. And we are starting to see this today. In As more of the world realizes that climate change is a significant problem, we are shaping the priorities of the technological innovators away from the next app where you can swipe right to find a match through to technologies that can tackle climate change. And so I think that's a good piece of evidence that demonstrates that we can shape the direction of that curve. How will exponential technologies change our world work? Yeah, technology has uh, always had quite complicated uh, impacts in in the world of work. Uh, Often, and the thing that technology has, has always done is that it has taken away the the worst of the work um the 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 work that is the most tiring the work that is the most most dangerous not exclusively but that that's what it largely does but the second impact it has is left without any kind of intervention uh technologies will tend to benefit the providers of capital uh the owners rather than the workers and certainly when Western Europe uh, industrialized in the 19th and early 20th century, what happened was that economic productivity rose, countries got well wealthier, but the, wor- the wages of the typical worker did not improve because the returns went to the providers of capital. And, you know, th- there's a lot of reasons to believe that a similar pattern could emerge today. So the thing that I, I um, am optimistic about is that technologies can help us create better spaces for for work. The thing that's problematic is that uh, the balance of power between the worker and the employer or the provider of capital will shift most likely away from the worker. Although, of course, there are nuances to this. So where where there's there's a shortage of workers, they will have more power than in markets where there's, there's a surfeit of workers. And we're starting to see after the coronavirus pandemic in many richer countries, workers are exhibiting more power because they're saying we're not going to go back to work in the the old ways. But it's a very complex picture. One of the things I don't think that happens, I don't think we see the wholesale replacement of human work by robotic work in a short period of time. Um, I think what, what 
ends up actually happening is that highly competitive companies make use of the best technology. And that means that they might use AI, they may use automation, they may use robots. And in doing so, they will become more successful. And as they become more successful, they will grow and they will hire more people. Their competitors will struggle. And so the way robots make people lose their jobs is that robots get used by companies which, who are successful, who become more successful and who put their competitors out of business. And that's where the job losses would seem to happen. And I think that's the story, for example, of the retail industry, where companies like Amazon and Ocado in the, U uh, in the UK and JD.com in, in China are highly roboticized, grow very, very quickly, hire more and more people, and their competitors who refuse to use the technologies well find themselves being less competitive. So what does a company need to do in order to increase its network effect or even build its own solar system? Well, we definitely see markets shifting um, around winner-take-all markets. And that's very true in, in consumer products that you and I may know well, whether it's uh, Netflix or Google or Apple. Um, but it's also true in Uh, you know, the products sold to businesses. And, and the reason uh, for that is that uh, a large part of what makes the modern exponential age company work is about its, its network effect. It's about how it can bring many customers together and many suppliers and help them each add value to each other. That the presence of additional customers enriches the experience that I have as a customer. A simple example is the difference between a dating service and an airline. When was the last time you went on a plane and were delighted to hear, the plane is full, it's oversold, it's so busy, you've got to, you can't take hand luggage on and there'll be someone else sitting on your lap. You're never happy when there are too many customers. But think about when you go, if you went onto a dating app and that they said, oh, there's no one on this dating app. Well, you'd be really disappointed. Whereas if they say everyone's on this dating app, um, you'd be really excited. And that's the power of the network effect, right? The power of the network effect is that additional customers make the service more valuable to future customers. And when you combine that with artificial intelligence, which loves extra data, you create many, many reasons why bigger companies inherently will continue to get bigger. And that's what we have seen largely in many of these markets. And I think it's a real risk because the way that economists have often thought about how markets work is that new entry from competitors is quite easy. And it's the reality of new entry or the threat of new entrants that keeps your existing companies hungry. It keeps them serving their customers. It keeps them innovating and reducing their prices. And what we see in these exponential age markets is that isn't the, di the dynamic. Now, there will be room for lots and lots of other companies because, of course, if you're a Google or a Facebook, you're dominant in your search or your, your social networking, but you support tens of millions of small businesses from the local patisserie to the local barber's shop to the local car, car mechanic. However, those are all small businesses and they are all essentially tenants on a digital platform where these big companies are the landlords and where these big companies determine the rules, they determine your profit margins, they determine your flow of customers, either directly or indirectly. So 
So I think the risk is that, that do you construct these strange solar systems where these dominant companies are the sun radiating all the energy, taking all the value, and there are small little planets that spin around them, um, eking out what they can? Do we end up in a world where big companies like Amazon and Google rule the world? I, I think it's a really hard uh, it's a really hard journey because incumbent companies have thought of themselves um, much built on what's known as a, a linear value chain that looks a lot like a factory. In comes your raw materials, then you do some process stage one. You take those processed pieces, you put them to stage two where they get processed further. They get packaged in the final product. They get put in a box. They get distributed and marketed and then ultimately sold. And it's a one-way flow. Um, increasingly, where the value of um, companies comes from is the ability to coordinate many, many different players um, around you. If you think about something like Airbnb, Airbnb coordinates millions of people looking for apartments with millions of people who have spare rooms or apartments they want to they want to rent and it's in a coordination game and the value of airbnb actually is not in the physical rooms it owns it's in it's a, it's in the intangible value of being able to do the matching and ensuring there is supply on one side and demand on the other uh, and what we see is that modern exponential age companies and it's reflected throughout the economy have most of their value in these these intangibles it's not stock and inventory that sits in a warehouse boxes of your finished products it is your know-how your customer data your ability to orchestrate that it's your software and in order to build that value and to build that on top of a platform that manages network effects it's a completely different set of of business skills and it may often mean that your many of your existing assets are not very helpful they may actually be damaging towards the transition that you want to want to make so not many companies stand out as great examples um, of having made made the shift and i think you can just look at the largest companies in the world um, and uh, with the exception of saudi aramco which is a family-owned oil company in, in saudi arabia um, The world's largest companies are all exponential age companies that have these characteristics that I've described. Many markets have been disrupted so far. The retail markets, the news industry, not so much the financial services industry. Are banks immune against disruption? Yet. <laughs> It's a key word. Uh, one of the earliest exponential age companies is Visa, the uh, the credit, the, the card credit card transaction network uh, which has a lot of the attributes that I describe in the sense it's a network and a platform and it really did uh, create significant shift in the financial services industry and every industry will be will be different based on the presence of in existing players their scale their brand the extent to which trust matters and also the regulatory uh, landscape that makes it easier or harder for new entrants to come in But I think what you start to see within financial services is, um, you know, really, really strong attackers. Um, they started in the area of payments uh, because payments was a very, very low margin business for, for banks. Um, and companies like Klarna and Buy Now and Pay Later or Adyen and PayPal 
which really work in, you know, that it's not necessarily the sort of sexiest part of the, the financial services industry have demonstrated that you can build multi, multi-billion, multi-10 billion dollar businesses in this area without um, the traditional banks figuring out how to respond. And then you have the question of decentralized finance, which is this idea of blockchain. And what I have noticed is that some of the very, very smart entrepreneurs and software developers, some of the smartest in the world are working in the decentralized finance uh, arena. Uh, and you know, you're now at a stage where trillions of dollars of value are actually locked in those platforms. And the thing, to th the thing I think to understand about how long it takes technologies to come to market is that these technologies are just over a decade old. The blockchain paper is you know, 10, 12 years old. Um, the Bitcoin paper, pardon me. And it takes a bit of time for the underlying infrastructure to be built out. You know, the internet arrived in, uh, started in 1969. And really, in all honesty, it wasn't until 1999 where you could say even in the US it's having a meaningful effect. But that's still only 30 years. And I would say that, that we've got through the first 10 years of decentralized finance or, or block, Bitcoin and blockchains, and only five or six years of decentralized finance really, uh, so it's still early in the, the game. So I would argue that no industry is really immune from this kind of innovation. Um, and, and that, that, but you may find that some industries, and I think finance is one, I think the automotive industry is another, have enough residual depth and complexity and trust around them that they may not suffer the fate that some retailers suffered or that some publishers suffered. Um, and, and they may be able to transition in some form into the new world. What do these developments mean from a geopolitical point of view? I mean, it's a really, uh, it's a really exciting time, shall we say. <laughs> uh, history perhaps has restarted. Um, the technologies themselves, um, have a really, really destabilizing effect. Um, on the one hand, they create uh, they create pressures towards the idea of uh, of global trade. Uh, they don't they don't stop it, but they create pressures because much more can be done locally. So, for example, because of solar power and large scale batteries you can start to generate your electricity for your uh, commercial and, and consumer needs locally in and around the cities. Um, and you can use uh, these automated robotic high intensity farms to produce your foodstuffs literally right in the city center. And so you don't need national grids and you don't need to be shipping oil and coal from one part of the world to another. And that creates some kind of headwind on, on global trade uh, that, that um, we didn't didn't previously exist, um, but I think there are other dynamics as well. I mean, another dynamic is that the, the as we distribute these technologies into our lives, we actually create vulnerabilities. Uh, back, um, you know, uh, fifty years ago, uh, the vulnerability of a state was its territorial borders, 
And it was very clear when an adversary came in. Uh, I was living in the UK, or I still do, of course, when during the height of the, the Second Cold War, when the Russian bombers would frequently fly, uh, the Soviet Union bombers would frequently fly over the North Sea and skirt Scotland's airspace and come back. You knew they were there. Today, in this exponential age, every single one of us has a border with this digital world through our smart devices at home, our computers, our phones, our email addresses, through our digital social profiles on Facebook in particular, but even on the other ones. And every single one of those becomes an a vulnerability that an adversary can use to needle into. And that's really interesting because the not only are we more vulnerable and exposed, and we've gone from one border in the UK to 60 million people who are all a border and all have multiple borders in this digital space. But the attacks are much cheaper because they can be done by, by software robots or software or automation. And, and they're more deniable. And so of course you see many more attacks. And they're constant. They're not like dropping bombs on, on London and, and near St. Paul's Cathedral, but they are constant moments of conflict and conflagration that create that sense of alertness and that sense of vulnerability. And I think if you would go back to a to hundred years ago and you asked a military strategist, how valuable would it be if before you attack with your cavalry and cannon, we could divide a population against itself over some tiny issue that doesn't really exist? Would that be helpful? Would it be helpful to attack an opponent who already is fighting with itself? And the answer is, of course, we would love that. And so when we look at the geopolitics of this and the conflict of this, the interesting thing is that actually we are vulnerable to being softer targets than we otherwise would have been because we are not as coherent and collective within our national boundaries as we used to be. And let me connect that to the first point about the headwinds of global trade. You know, the long-term theory was that nations who trade together won't go to war together. It was too expensive. But when you start to create the, the, the subtle, gentle pressure of self-sufficiency, which may come from these technologies, it may come as a direct response to strategic competition, you reduce that rationale for constant peace uh, because the economic rationale doesn't, is not as strong as it once was. And so I think that creates an, an environment for much more conflict of many, many different types uh, which we then have to take steps, obviously, to mitigate. What needs to be done to mitigate these conflicts? Well, um, you have to do a number of different things. Um, you have to, first of all, invest in uh, your resilience and your uh, and your defenses, and that means are your are your people, uh, your population, are they are they able to handle? deliberate disinformation campaigns? Um, are they able to spot fake news? Are they able to uh, look after their um, passwords correctly and not fall for phishing scams? So those things become important. And what's true for the population is then true for your national infrastructure and it's true for your, your companies. And so do you have the ability to maintain the coherence and stability of that national infrastructure. And then I think you need to be able to, um, you need to be able to have parts of communication and rules of escalation with your adversaries. 
And, and then I think finally, after that, you should start to move to a moment where of transparency and of disclosure. I mean, it sounds fanciful, the idea that we might have see countries transparent about their cyber warfare capabilities. But we mustn't forget that the Soviet Union and the United States moved in the matter of less than a decade from a, 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 a nuclear arms race to literally inspecting each other's nuclear weapons facilities, which was a result consequence of the INF, Intermediate Nuclear Forces uh, Treaty, which, you know, the Americans left just when Donald Trump was president. But, you know, when that treaty was in, was in force, United States and Russia would inspect each other's nuclear arsenals in, in, within certain parameters. So it is possible to get there. So I think it's a number of different steps that have to be have to be taken, uh, rather than simply accepting that this is the the way of nature, the way of life, and we have to live live with it. Let's come back to the climate crisis issue. How can fast developing technologies help to tackle the issues? Is it actually possible, due to the nature of exponentiality, that we may find solutions faster than we think? Well, I think the the interesting thing is that the technologies themselves um, have this uh, quality that they use fewer resources for the output that we get. So we're getting more from less. And uh, so our economies now produce more wealth and less CO2 output um, in certainly, the, you know, many of the richer countries in the world. Uh, but the other thing is that the technologies themselves enable us to find certain types of technical solutions um, that might be helpful. For example, very cheap Earth observation satellites, of which there are now thousands, allow us to look at patterns of rainforest destruction and also track where there is fire risk and track the progress we're making to reforest uh, areas of, of the planet. Um, so I would, my take would be that, that the technologies are a necessary condition to being able to tackle the, uh, the climate crisis. Um, and because they improve so quickly, they may actually surprise us on the pathway that they, they, take, they take us on. However, they, that doesn't necessarily mean we will apply them correctly. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll have the political will to do that. And nor does it mean that we will prevent overconsumption. Because one of the, the sort of little factors I think that many of us are familiar with is that that we humans can overconsume. Uh, when I was researching my book, uh, I ran out of bookshelf space and I had books all over my desk. So I bought a new little bookshelf. And then within a week, that bookshelf was full and I had books all over my desk again. And that is called the rebound effect. Um, and the, the, the rebound effect is this idea that if we really reduce the, the, the price of something, we actually increase its overall aggregate demand. And so that is something that we need to, to guard against. The technologies themselves can't do much about that. They can enable better recycling and waste management and the circular economy. But we have to design that and say, this is what we want to happen. So, so there are an, a necessary but not sufficient part to tackling the sustainability challenge. You're the father of three children. What do you think will their life look like in 30 years' time? It's a really, really interesting uh Interesting question. Um, we have, uh, you know, we've progressively, um, as we get richer, uh, eliminated certain amount types of physical um, activity. And even though in some countries we may believe that we we work 
more than ever. A lot of what we do is, I mean, is it really work? You know, when you go to a business conference, is that work in the same way as working as a slave for the pharaohs in ancient Egypt, dragging stones to build the pyramids was work? I mean, it feels like it, your boss may be bad, <laughs> but he's never going to be as bad uh, as a as a pharaonic overseer. Um, and so, so I think that the the interesting um, uh, question is: there'll be certain classes of work that won't be taking place. You know, we won't be mining coal, um, and we won't be drilling for for oil. But we may well be pumping oil, uh, pumping carbon dioxide back into oil old oil wells. Uh, to to store to store them there, um, and thirty years I think is long enough for us to to see a shift in the types of jobs uh, that people will end up doing, and I think a lot of that will will end up being human to human interaction, uh, whether it, what we consider sort of service jobs uh, today, whether it's you know working with people on pursuits that matter to them whether it's working as a, as a carer, working as a specialist. Uh, those are the types of things where as we, as we are able to automate larger parts of what we currently consider as work, the natural space will then be to work with each other. If you were granted a wish from a fairy for the next three years to come, What would that wish look like? One of the powers of these technologies in the landscape in which they emerge is that they actually create um, public goods, goods that are could easily be provided as uh, for the benefit of all, like a, a public park or clean air. Um, but right now, those public goods are held within the boundaries of very, very profitable companies. And those kind of public goods are, for example, the information that is you know, indexed by, by Google, the um, data about who knows who and why we know each other, the flows of passengers uh, around cities that stored by the ride-hailing companies. And I think that while it's useful and it's good that these companies have been able to make profits off that and, and, and that's why they've built these systems, at some point we need to look at these things and say these things are public goods and they might be better off serving the public, organized in some way where our rights are protected so that everyone can benefit from them and everyone can build on top of them. In the same way that the public good of education created educated workers on which every entrepreneur now relies when they create their new business. And so one of my, if I was given this wish from this fairy, let's call the fairy, fairy Ostrom, uh, after Eleanor Ostrom, the Nobel Prize winning economist uh, who did a lot of work in this area. I would say, can we, what, what of these positive, returns to scale, benefits that look like public goods, can we move into the commons in a protected, rights-protected, humanistic way that we can then use to uh, you know, build the future from? Thank you so much, Azim, for your time. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Bert. Really, really appreciate that.